What Makes a Killer contains graphic details of sexual assault and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is strongly advised. It's May 6, 1983, in the small village of Narkova, Poland. For nearly a decade, Polish women all around the city of Gdansk have been living in fear of a mysterious sexual predator who has been attacking women with a hammer. Up to now, the attacks have been non-lethal, only assault, until Yolanta. The 19-year-old seamstress is on her way home on this spring evening, unaware that someone is stalking her in the shadows. Suddenly, a person appears in front of her. It's a tall man with brown, matted hair, sunken cheeks, and a large nose. It's clear what he wants. He's an exhibitionist and often harasses women by showing off his genitals. But Yolanda refuses his crude advances, which only makes him angry. The man is determined to have his way, and so he reaches for a hidden weapon down his pants, a large hammer wrapped in bandages. He hits Yolanta with the hammer, subduing her, and then sexually assaults her. Well, he would attack his victims quite savagely uh, with a hammer, and sometimes he'd, he'd completely obliterate their face. But the injuries from a hammer blow do more than just subdue her. Yolanta dies from the awful trauma she sustains. She is the ninth murder victim, and she will be the last one. Soon after Yolanta's death, police are called to investigate the house of farmer Pavel Tuklin. Tuklin's neighbor noticed that some of their property had gone missing, and it didn't take them long to figure out who stole it. I think at this point in time, he does feel like he can do whatever he likes, that, that the authorities are never going to catch up with him. Tuklin was placed under arrest, but it was only pretense to take him in. On seeing his face, the police knew right away that he was something more than a petty thief. When we saw Pavel, the four of us were sat in the car and we all thought... It must be him. It must be him. The police approached Tuklin when they already knew he was a murderer. They handcuffed him, and you don't do this for such a petty crime. A Polish task force had been put together to hunt down the hammer-wielding madman known as the Scorpion. The Scorpion had killed nine women and attacked at least 11 others, but now authorities had the scorpion under their shoe. At first, he didn't want to talk. He said he didn't remember. We were asking him about specific places and specific dates. And step by step, Pavel began to reveal the truth. This is what makes a killer a series that chronicles the lives and crimes of the world's most notorious killers. I'm your host, Jennifer Natoso. In every episode, we'll trace a killer's origins, examine their behavior, and follow their path to bloodshed. In this episode, we'll discuss Pavel Tuklin, the Scorpion.
Pavel Tuklin was born on April 28, 1946, in the village of Gura, about 40 miles from the major Polish port city, Gdansk. Tuklin had a large family. He was the eighth child of 11. Author and journalist Jeffrey Wansel says Tuklin didn't have a happy upbringing. Tuklin is born in a rural community in Poland, fairly isolated. The parents, Bernard and Monica, are farmers, and it's a fairly disciplined household. The father is violent, often drunk. Even though he had ten other siblings, Tuklin was often on the wrong end of a beating. Forensic psychologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley says the violence Tuklin experienced in childhood shaped how he viewed authority. His parents were farmers. There was quite a lot of violence in the household. Violence was part and parcel of of everyday life. Growing up, he's learning that, that violence is a way of getting things done, that controlling people, that having authority over them is achieved through being physically harmful towards them. Tuklin was further scarred by an unfortunate condition which caused him to wet the bed well into his teens. But rather than sympathy, his father only berated him for it, says investigative journalist Christoph Wojcik. There were times when his father beat him for wetting the bed. This problem was never taken care of. Tuklin's bedwetting was a fact known throughout his small village, and the embarrassment caused him to have problems making friends. Pavel wet himself. It led to the problems with making connections with his peers. The kids at school called him a stinker, a firefighter or a pisser. He was an object of ridicule in the classroom. He wet himself up until he was 18 years old. He was not accepted by his peers, not to mention the girls. He smells quite strongly of urine. The other kids aren't going to want to hang around with him. They're going to make fun of him. So everywhere he goes, he's isolated. And he's somebody who is increasingly going towards the margins. Tuklin faced more humiliation when he tried to enroll in the army, but he was turned away due to damaged hearing. And so Tuklin left his village as soon as he could. Hey, true crime fans. If you like serial-style docuseries and learning more about psychology and criminology, then you're going to love Something Was Wrong. Something Was Wrong is an Iris Award-winning docuseries podcast about the discovery, trauma, and recovery from emotionally and otherwise abusive relationships. Every season covers a different story, and each one will help you better understand, and possibly relate to, what it's like to recover from relationships with narcissists, sociopaths, and psychopaths. It's a new kind of true crime podcast. Season one tells the story of Sarah, who believed she was engaged to the Christian man of her dreams, until one week before their wedding when she realized something was wrong. Something Was Wrong is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite shows. At 18, he moved to the suburbs of the large port city Gdansk. There, he got a job working in construction. He wants to start afresh in a city where nobody knows him. And he seems to achieve this for for at least a short period of time. So he meets a woman, they get married, they have a baby. 
Tuklin built a new life for himself in Gdansk, but there were a few small things about him that the outside world didn't know. First, Tuklin had a habit of stealing things, including supplies from work, and he had also developed voyeuristic tendencies as a teenager. He starts engaging in a behavior known as scoptophilia, or voyeurism. So he gets pleasure, he gets sexual gratification through, through watching women through their windows, and this makes him feel quite powerful. Things escalated further after Tuklin's marriage went south. He suspected his wife was cheating on him. It was quickly apparent to his wife, and then probably pretty apparent to him, that this wasn't going to work. The marriage was going to collapse. Indeed, it did. It ended in divorce in 1973. After the separation from his wife, Tuklin retreated into his own world, and the sexual fantasies he had needed another outlet, says author Christoph Wojcik. Tuklin's sexual madness evolved gradually. Then exhibitionism was added. Tuklin wandered around Gdansk, and he just exposed himself in front of girls. He often wore a coat and would get his penis out and flash. Tuklin's exhibitionism wasn't always enough gratification for him. Krzysztof Wojcik remembers an incident that happened near the medical academy. He would undress, unzip his jacket. One student saw his penis and, hey dude, you have nothing to show, and she started to laugh. In this moment, Tuklin got pissed off. For sure it upset him. That was a moment when he thought, bloody women, I will show you. He's got these urges, he, he wants to, to fulfill them, and the, the only way that he's going to do that is going to be through force. On October 31st, 1975, 21-year-old Danuta had left work as a waitress. As she walked home, Tuklin followed her, staying a few meters behind. Danuta realized someone was there, but when she stopped to look, he only asked her for a match. Stanisław Szwek, an investigator on the team to find Tuklin, vividly describes the assault. He attacks this girl, smashes her with a hammer, and drags her to the bushes. Tuklin was well armed with a hammer. This was a method he learned as a child on his family's farm. He hit the women so they wouldn't move. He stunned them, just as he learned to do when he lived in the country, when his father stunned the pigs before he killed them. The attack could have been even more savage, but Tuklin was interrupted. Another woman suddenly came along the path and heard Danuta struggle. So, he says to the woman, I think someone's groaning over there. Something bad must have happened. You stay here, and I'll go call the ambulance. He then calmly walks away. What was unlucky for Tuklin was lucky for Danuta. If she had not been found quickly, she might not have survived. It was the decisive factor for her. 
The police and ambulance came and they took her to the hospital. She was in critical condition. They managed to save her life. It was only because Tuklin did not stay with her. Tuklin got away with his first attack. And more troubling was that his violent fantasy wasn't satisfied. Two months later in January, armed again with his hammer, he went back on the prowl. A young nurse had just gotten off duty from the hospital in Gdansk. It was a cold day, and she wanted to take a taxi, but the line was too long, so she took the bus and walked from there. To Tuklin, she was just another woman walking home alone. As she crossed into a park, he unzipped his pants and followed her, hammer in hand. But, says author and journalist Jeffrey Wansel, things went wrong for Tuklin again. It's cold, wet, snowing, isolated, and he's literally hunting for prey. The second attack, he hits the woman again on the head with a hammer and then again is interrupted. He attacked the woman near her house and, once subdued, dragged her under the stairs. A neighbor heard a noise and turned on the outdoor light, and Tuklin, startled, escaped. So you've got these first two attacks, which are effectively coitus interrupters. The fulfillment hasn't actually happened, and so he's thinking, this must be completed. This victim also survived but she was seriously injured by the savage assault. Still unfulfilled, Tuklin attacked again four weeks later. His M.O. was the same. He found a woman walking home alone at night. His M.O. was quite basic and quite brutal, so he would go out equipped with a hammer that he would wrap cloth around the top of, not to soften the blow, but to stop his stomach from getting cold when he tucked it down his trousers. His approach with his victims was incredibly direct. Some of them he would walk up to and say, have sex with me. Uh, And clearly, that's not going to be met with with a, a particularly warm reception. The third victim was younger than the others were. She was only 18. She lived at the top of a hill and was walking up it when she noticed someone lurking behind her. The girl stopped to tie her shoe, thinking he would walk past her. But he didn't. Forensic pathologist Dr. Stuart Hamilton says this was part of the game. He liked to chase his victims. He didn't just want to overcome them straight away. He wanted, I guess you'd call it, the thrill of the chase. It would prolong the pleasure for him and obviously the distress for his victim. Tuklin grabbed her from behind and hit her with his hammer. This attack was especially brutal. He hit her so hard, a piece of her skull was later found on the sidewalk. Sometimes he'd he'd completely obliterate their face. That is often a a very personal style of, of killing. It's taking away somebody's identity when you're attacking their face in that way. So he probably felt quite resentful towards his victims. Subdued, Tuklin assaulted her, says criminal psychologist Dr. David Holmes which in a way gave him a perfect M.O. because that person from that point on 
would not be any trouble, would not scream, would not draw attention, and they would be exactly what he wanted, a passive, motionless female that he could sexually gratify himself with. Tuglin fled and left the woman with severe brain injuries. But she was alive. Even though he had fulfilled his fantasy, Tuklin didn't stop attacking and assaulting women. He claimed the hammer was stronger than him, that it pulled him around the streets as he went on the prowl. These became harrowing times for the people of Gdansk. Investigative journalist Christoph Wojcik followed the case. When all this happened, there was a psychosis of fear here on the coast. Women were afraid of going out in the evenings. If they had to go out or when they finished working in the evening, men were asked to join them, to protect them. The pattern continued until the end of 1976. The attacks on women in and around Gdansk suddenly ceased. His attacking of women comes to stop because he's an imprisoned from 1976 until 1979, he's in jail for theft from his workplace. Tuklin had other criminal inclinations. He was a thief as well as a sexual predator. He had been caught stealing tools at work and served three years for it. In 1979, he was released and got a job at a company that repaired railway stock. He was in charge of distributing tools, so his weapon of choice became readily available. It was only a matter of time before he struck again. He was developing into a a bit of a hunter, a bit of a predator. He came to figure out the the ways that would be most effective to get what he wanted. So he'd pick locations that were isolated, where, where there wouldn't be other people around. So if somebody comes along and they're a woman and they're on their own, then they're potentially one of his victims. On November 9th, 1979, Tuklin was back on the hunt once more. That night, he got on a small bus to a village some 20 miles outside Gdansk, and something was different. This was not a situation like before when he just wanted to expose himself or masturbate. He was actively looking for a victim. He doesn't start out as a killer. But the inevitable outcome of that desire is that the the attacks escalate. And they escalate, obviously, into murder. Irina, a 20-year-old nurse, was walking home when Tuklin spotted her. She was walking alone. He was getting closer and closer to her. He already had his penis exposed. She turned towards him, but he just attacked her with a hammer. Forensic pathologist Dr. Stuart Hamilton. We're talking about 15 hammer blows to the head. Every one of those is going to lacerate the scalp, potentially fracture the skull. By the time you've got through 15 blows, it is going to be quite a horrific sight. There's going to be severe damage. Irina had been more than subdued. Tuklin dragged her into some nearby bushes and sexually assaulted her. The girl was still alive. 
Ona jeszcze poruszała, poruszała i rękoma. She moved her hands and she tried to bend her legs. These were the unconditioned reflexes after severe damage to her head. Dozens of hammer hits caused the base of her skull to fracture. His feelings of power come from making others powerless. And there is no kind of sense of respect for his victims. They are literally just sex dolls for him that just lie there whilst he does what he wants. And, and he doesn't give a damn whether they live or they die. As long as he gets what he wants at that particular given time, then he's happy. When Tuklin finished, he got dressed, wiped the blood off the hammer and walked away. He left this woman lying there in the field. This time, help didn't arrive in time. And so 20-year-old Irina became Tuklin's first murder victim. But as Tuklin bolted from the scene of the crime, he made a major mistake. He tried to cross over a river to hide his trail and nearly drowned. Even more costly, he dropped his hammer. He suddenly stopped, and then the hammer dropped out of his hand and fell into the water. Irina was found later that night. Irena died at 1 or 2 a.m. She was found next morning. There was no chance anybody could save her. The police searched the crime scene the next day and soon found the hammer lying in shallow water. And it wasn't just any hammer. There was a sign on it, ZNTK, for the rolling stock maintenance and construction factory. The police went to the ZNTK factory, or Rolling Rock Repair Plant, where Tuklin was in charge of handing out the tools and looked at the checkout list. But because he had stolen the hammer, his name wasn't on the list. Tuklin slipped through the net. And that would prove deadly. Pavel Tuklin had just committed his first murder after attacking four women in and around Gdansk, Poland. In 1980, Tuklin moved back to the village of Gura, where he was born. He was hiding in plain sight. He'd even remarried and had a second child. His wife and neighbor seemed oblivious to his heinous activities. All of his absences could be easily explained away. I think he kept them reasonably well hidden in that he went out you know, during the night and at times when he might not be missed that easily. He explained he had some extra jobs. He said that apart from his regular job, he made extra money working for private individuals. All the while, Tuklin's deadly desires had not abated. They were only growing stronger. It would be just a matter of time before he attacked again. There's always going to be something in the background that is unresolved in him. He's always going to feel that resentment and that, that bitterness towards people who marginalized him growing up. One of the problems where someone engages in this kind of attack um, for a sexual purpose is that the repetitive nature becomes a little bit mundane once it's been done a few times to add excitement, to add more kind of stimulation to it. Those attacks became more and more vicious and more often deadly. 
February 1st, 1980, Tuklin was once again on the prowl when he spotted 30-year-old Anastasia. Tuklin approached the young woman with yet another hammer tucked into his pants. Anastasia rejected his advances, and so he ruthlessly struck. After he assaulted her, Tuklin went through her bag and took whatever he wanted. Criminal psychologist Dr. David Holmes says it was the start of Tuklin taking mementos. Tuklin actually did, after he had managed to gratify himself, rummage through the bags and, and belongings of the victims. He will have taken things, the odd trophy that he could actually use as as some kind of reminder of the event itself. But he also almost engaged in a kind of post-sex celebratory meal. He would take any food that was left and he would eat it whilst actually watching the victims die, bleed, be in agony. Here's somebody who doesn't care about the the suffering or the pain of other people. He'll take the the lunch of one of his victims and he'll sit there eating it while she's fighting for her life because it's all about him and his own survival and his own needs and his own desires. Anastasia was Tuklin's second murder victim. And by the end of 1980, Tuklin had killed a total of six women, causing endless grief for their families and loved ones. The oldest was 35, the youngest only 18. One of the women had been coming back from a wedding dress fitting. It would have been really terrifying being a a woman in this area of Poland at this particular point in time. There have been all these hammer attacks on women, nine were killed, and this is going on for years. And all the time, women have still got to go out to work, shop for groceries, they've still got to be in and around public spaces where they might be at risk. With so many attacks and the public living in fear, it would seem logical that the police would intervene. But the 1970s and 1980s were politically troubled times in Poland. An opposing anti-communist force to the authoritarian government had risen. It was called Solidarnosc, or the Solidarity, and the members of its labor union were almost a third of the entire Polish population. Then, solidarity was shut down by the government, and later in the 80s, martial law was put in place. A revolution was brewing, and the government was more concerned about Poland's failing economy than catching a killer. And because jewelry was missing, the militia could put the attacks down to a robbery. Andre Gavris was a detective in Gdansk who was on the task force eventually assigned to Tuklin. This was not the greatest time in the history of Poland. The authorities weren't too bothered to reveal that a criminal was prowling in our area. With the communist government preoccupied, few resources were allocated to murder investigations. And despite a few slip-ups, Tuklin was being careful. That said... A pattern was forming, and it could be linked to transportation. On the map, you can see the spread of the crimes. In the beginning, when Pavel Tuklin lived with his first wife in Gdansk, he attacked in the suburbs of the city. After 1980, when he moved to Gura, the attacks were there. He moved by bus, by train or by stolen car. 
dojeżdżał pociągiem albo kradzionym samochodem i kolejne ataki mamy w tych miejscowościach And the following attacks in these towns were along the car route. Samochodowej? I think Tushlin got used to getting away with it. There was something in him. He was a loner, he was a ordinary man who seemed to be able to get away with attacking women almost at will because he was quite careful. He chose isolated spots, rural communities where there was no one to see him. Everything changed on December 8th, 1982. Tuklin was about to force the government to pay attention to him. There was a big fog on that day. The temperature in Skarsheva was approximately zero, and the town was surrounded by a fog so thick that there was no visibility. The foggy conditions were ideal for an attack. Tuklin saw 26-year-old Bozena, a local factory worker, walking home, once again alone. He saw she was petite. Bojena was a slight woman. When he was close, he simply attacked her. Tuklin hit her on the head with the hammer and incapacitated her. Then he threw her over a wall out of sight and continued his attack. Residents in an apartment complex nearby later reported hearing her cries for help. The residents heard the voice, Mum, Mummy, the voice of a girl, some moans coming from the bushes. But no one really knew what was going on. Tuklin started to undress Bojena. In the meantime, she woke up several times, said something, started begging for help. When he was done satisfying himself, Tuklin left the fatally injured Bozena to die. He hit her with a hammer again. After the first hit, Bojena woke up at least twice, as he described it later. This time, however, he'd made a fatal error. This murder happened next door to the local Communist Party headquarters. When the victim was found the next day, the party had no choice but to investigate. In January 1983, a task force was set up to find the man who assaulted 16 women with a hammer. The task force and Tuklin himself were nicknamed Scorpiona, the Scorpion. It's kind of appropriate, the idea of the sudden striking motion that you're not expecting. You can imagine a scorpion moving like that. Stanisław Szwek was one of the commanders of the unit. Our group had the support of the whole police force in the entire area. In fact, the information connected with this case was flooding in from different directions. Schweck said that once they looked into the case, they were easily able to find connections. First, they linked all the murders that were committed in the same way. From there, they quickly worked out they were dealing with one person, who was both a sexual predator and a serial killer. Here's Andre Gavris, a key detective on the Scorpion team. People who worked on those cases had a stronger and stronger belief that all these murders were committed by one person. 
The hunt for the killer was on. But instead of being afraid, Dr. Elizabeth Yardley says the task force likely made Tuchlin feel even more important. I think he would have been well aware of the, the coverage of these crimes and, and the fact that he was branded the scorpion. Here's somebody who's been marginalised and isolated and excluded their, their entire lives, and, and now they're this pseudo-celebrity. Now everybody is talking about them. And I think that would have made him feel quite powerful. Tuchlin should have been afraid. With the task force fully energised, the clock was ticking for the scorpion. Pavel Tuklin was living on a family farm in the village of Gura, some 40 miles from Gdansk in Poland. He'd attacked 16 women with a hammer, killing eight of them. But now a task force was in place, searching the cities and combing the countryside. Beyond murder, Tuklin had criminal behavior in his past that had landed him in jail before, and it was about to get him into trouble once again. He wasn't just a sexual predator, he was a thief. He stole a van, and as he was driving the van, he sees a woman walking along the road, and I think he sees an opportunity there, and he decides, right, well, I want her. In February, Tuklin stole a van and was driving near the small town of Lubahova when he spotted some piglets at a local farm. Tuklin saw there were some piglets in the pigsty. He drove to the back loaded the piglets and arrived home unnoticed. He told his wife he got the piglets for a job he did, instead of money. He put the piglets into the pigsty, built a fence, spent some time at home, and then went hunting again. The next morning, Tuklin went to pursue his next victim. 25-year-old Viaswava was an accountant at a local farm and was getting ready to go to work. In most of his other attacks, Tuklin waited until the dead of night, but this time it was broad daylight. He was getting bolder. And then everything does start to unravel, because he's changed his MO. This isn't the, the usual hammer attack that he uses. And I think at this point in time, he feels like he's pretty invincible. Nobody's caught up with him yet. Tuklin followed her as she walked, and when he thought no one was around, he sped up. When Tuklin saw a woman walking along the side of the road, he sharply pulled over and hit her. She lost consciousness. Tuklin put Viaswava in the back of the van and drove to secluded woodlands nearby. He then took her out of the van and viciously attacked her. There, he took a hammer and began striking her. He left her completely annihilated. When he was done, Tuklin left her to die in the field. But on his way home, the van got stuck in some mud. Tuklin had no choice but to abandon the van. And unbeknownst to him, Viaswava had not died. Viaswava was really lucky. She survived despite being hit with a hammer. Viaswava was able to get a good look at the face of her attacker. She gave the police a description of the man. This description, along with those by his other surviving victims, was turned into a photo-fit sketch. At the scene, police examined the van. They found pig feces in the back, 
and they determined that the attacker must have been living in the country and not the city. Yet the biggest clue? The fact that he could drive. In the 1980s, being able to drive in Poland was still a rarity. The list of people with licenses contained only a couple of thousand drivers. I remember it like it was yesterday. We requested the records of all people who had a driving license from the areas in which he attacked and murdered people. Commander Stanisław Szwek himself searched through the records, first comparing names to those of known criminals. It was a list of crimes committed by a man named Paweł Tuchlin. There was something about thefts. He stole some things. Then police compared the license photo to the eight photo fit sketches. And Stanisław had a eureka moment. When I saw it, when I saw what he looked like, it was a dream come true. It was a compilation of all the photo fits we already had from the witness testimonies. Well, this information, joined by the fact he had a license, gave me the shivers. From the driver's license records, the investigators were also able to find Tuklin's home address. But while the Scorpion task force was still putting the pieces together, Tuklin struck one last time. On May 6, 1983, Tuklin approached Yolanta, a 19-year-old seamstress. When she refused his crude advances, he hit her with his hammer and then sexually assaulted her. Yolanta later died from the awful injuries she'd sustained. Tuklin, however, was once again undone by his impulse for theft. He stole a large pig cooker from the farm next door to his. I think at this point in time, he does feel like he can do whatever he likes, that that the authorities are never going to catch up with him. The neighbor knew at once who the thief was and called the police. On May 31, 1983, three weeks after his last murder, police arrived to arrest 37-year-old Pavel Tuklin. When we saw Pavel, the four of us were sat in the car and we all thought, it must be him, it must be him. The police approached Tuklin when they already knew he was a murderer. But the cooker was a pretext to arrest him. They handcuffed him, and you don't do this for such a petty crime. A leading Polish forensic expert, Adrian Roswatsky, analyzed the case. Following Tuklin's arrest and during the search of his property, where a lot of evidence was secured, the officers found his shoes in the cupboard of his electrical workshop. Inside the house, investigators also found gold and jewelry that had belonged to some of the victims. Tuklin had even given some of it to his wife. But it was when they searched his car and found a murder weapon, a blood-stained hammer, that Tuklin's fate was sealed. Andre Gavris led the questioning in the police station. The interrogation lasted around four and a half hours, but Pavel stayed calm throughout the whole thing. At first, he didn't want to talk. He said he didn't remember. 
We were asking him about specific places and specific dates. And step by step, Pavel began to reveal the truth. Once Tuchlin was actually confronted with evidence, he knew the game was up. He knew that he may as well confess. He may as well sort of get it off his chest, if you like, but most of all, probably, um, be able at last to brag about it. Then, in an extraordinary development, Tuchlin volunteered to reenact the attacks. He was so excited by these events that during the investigation, he often said he could show more during the reconstructions. And he even asked, as there were legal apprentices there, to get the younger girls so he could demonstrate it better as they turned him on. Not only was he reliving what he'd done, he was also kind of showing off to all these fairly indifferent individuals exactly what he had done. And he was to some degree proud of it because those were his sexual conquests. The police took Tuchlin back to the scenes of his crimes. One of the officers acted as a victim while Tuchlin was given a fake hammer. Eventually, Tuchlin confessed to nine murders. On May 5, 1985, Tuchlin's trial began at the provincial courthouse in Gdansk. Despite having confessed all of his crimes to authorities, in court, he told a different story. Up until then, he pleaded guilty of the charges, as well as actively taking part in the visits to the crime scenes. But after the reading of his indictment, he pleaded not guilty. Tuklin said the Scorpion unit offered him a deal. If he confessed, he wouldn't be sent to prison, but instead to a psychiatric unit. If he confessed, he would spend three years under observation in a psychiatric unit, but then he would be free to go and enjoy his life. The court, however, didn't find this defense justified. There was just too much evidence to prove his guilt. On August 6, 1985, Pavel Tuklin was found guilty of nine murders and 11 attempted murders. He was sentenced to death. At the end, this was the last shocking thing. The prosecutor asked him what he would do if he was released. Pavel replied, well, I'd probably go for another hunt. Nearly 12 years after his first attack, Tuklin was executed for his crimes. He was sentenced to death by hanging, and as he was being being led to the end, he really was kicking off. He was giving his guards a very hard time of it. And you often see this with, with killers who are, are given the, the death sentence. They have a, a last vestige of power here. They can control what happens in relation to their death, and he wasn't going to go quietly. We did this. We worked this case for the memory of these girls who were always on my mind. With Tuklin's death, the women of Poland were able to breathe a sigh of relief. Thanks to the Scorpion team, his eight-year reign of terror in and around Gdansk was finally over. 
but critics are quick to point out that authorities had the evidence they needed after the very first victim. Had the trail of the dropped hammer been followed, perhaps the lives of those other victims could have been saved. It was a big embarrassment for the police to admit that there was a serial killer in the communist country. The serial killers could exist in the USA, in the UK, or in the rotten West, as Western Europe was called back then. Not in a beautiful communist country like Poland. What Makes a Killer is an Audio Boom original series in production with Woodcut Media and hosted by me, Jennifer Natoso. This series is produced by Audio Boom's Rachel Jacobs, Blair Payton, Lauren Vogel, Karen Bevan, and by Nick Maverdeckis for Woodcut. Original music by Ben Kregi. Executive producers for Woodcut are Kate Beale and Janelle Patel, and for Audio Boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. A special thanks to the friends and families of victims willing to share their stories. If you or someone you know is a victim of sexual assault, please reach out for help. You can contact the National Sexual Assault Hotline by calling 1-800-656-HOPE or 1-800-656-4673. You can also visit the website at rain.org. That's R-A-I-N-N dot O-R-G. If you haven't already, don't forget to follow us on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. If you have some time, we'd be grateful for a review. On next week's episode of What Makes a Killer, Rodney Alcala was in the midst of a murder spree that would eventually kill uncounted women in cruel and unusual ways and he collected hundreds of photographs of his victims. When we got into his storage locker, immediately after, uh, after he was identified and arrested, there's thousands of photographs of young women and young boys and adult women, young girls, uh, that to this day, we've been unable to identify many of them. But no one suspected who he really was. He was even able to show up on national TV on a dating show.